Most people have heard of phytoestrogens, but did you know there are beneficial phytoandrogens that mimic and support testosterone and more? The top source of these is pine pollen. If you're looking for 100% natural hormonal support for men and women, you've got to try this. Right now, Lost Empire Herbs' best-selling pine pollen is available for one penny plus shipping and handling. Go to GeniusPollen.com to find out more and grab yourself a bag today. No hidden charges, no trial offer, no shenanigans. Just a low-cost way to try Lost Empire Herbs' top product for next to nothing. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Zoe Diana. Uh, She's a scientist at uh, Marine Lab at Duke University. She's a PhD candidate there. So we're going to talk about her research interests around plastic pollution and management. So Zoe, thank you for coming. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Richard. If you would, tell me about your background. What got you interested in you know, microplastics and uh, plastic waste? Yeah. Um, so my background, I originally, during my master's, I, was, I wasn't studying plastic pollution. I got into this during the PhD. But originally, I was studying actually barnacle adhesive and some of the anti-fouling coatings that are used to keep barnacles off of boats. So I've always been interested in sort of these interactions between how humans are trying to, you know, meet their ends in terms of maintaining their boats for anti-fouling coatings, and then how that affects the ocean and the animals that live there. So originally, that's what I was doing for my master's. I wanted to continue doing research and the opportunity came to came up to study plastics. And I was like, yes, this is a fascinating topic and something I had always been interested in. I, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so a landlocked area, but I've always been interested in the marine environment and actually wrote an essay on the Great Pacific Garbage Patch when I was like a senior in high school. So cool. it's always, yeah, it, it came back around um, and I, I finally got my time, I'd say. <laughs> Have you been able to visit the the garbage patch or is it like really far away? I haven't had a chance to visit it. When I tell you a little bit more about my work, I'm not in the field as much as I would like to be. But, you know, and there was also some diff- some um, COVID cancellations for some field work I was supposed to do as well. Yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> it would be cool but, if they had, uh, someone was a tour guide and you paid them and they took you out to the garbage patch and, you know, you you... You had to collect like a few pieces of plastic from there, you know, to bring back, let's say, as like souvenirs or something. And it might help maybe monetize a little bit of the cleanup if someone did that. So I believe Five Gyres, the nonprofit, it does do trips out to whether that be the garbage patch, but also other areas as well that mm-hmm. folks can join, whether you're, you know, a scientist or an artist. I'm not affiliated with Five Gyres, so best to reach out to them but there are some groups who are doing trips like that and i i agree it's a it's a great way as well just to spread like the education awareness about marine plastic pollution 
But something about the great garbage patch, just since it came up, oftentimes, you know, in the media, we see these like these images of large tires and plastic bottles everywhere floating around. But a lot of the plastic that's actually out there in the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is microplastics from what the science is saying. So these small pieces of plastic less than five millimeters in size that you wouldn't actually see, though, if you went out unless you, of course, had the gear in order to collect microplastics. So just an interesting tidbit. Yeah. Do you, do you think there might be an interface between the barnacle work and this? Um, you know, it, it brings to mind an interesting question. Like, in the marine environment, does any of this plastic garbage get barnacles on it? <laughs> yeah, that's a great know. question. Um, we're looking at some settling of different animals on plastic at the Duke Marine Lab. These results haven't been published yet, and it's just sort of a preliminary study. I don't believe we were seeing barnacles out there. But something that is slightly tangential but related to your point is that a lot of the commercial hull coatings on boats, so that's going to be the portion above water, as well as the anti-fouling paints have a large polymer component. And we're finding out that paints are actually one of the largest contributors to microplastic pollution in oceans and waterways, whether that be paints from boats, but as well like architectural paints road paints, so on, are actually contributing to microplastics. So in some ways, there's already barnacles on paint because the anti-fouling coatings themselves are actually polymers. They contain, oftentimes contain metals as well in greater percent weight by weight than your typical plastics that you come in contact with in your everyday life. But just an interesting point. Yeah, but are are particles then anti-biofilm? anti-barnacle does that mean that they're less likely to have them or does that mean that they attract them it seems like it seems like they would repel them they should repel them for the anti-fouling coatings yeah so the um you know that's their whole their whole point is to keep them off of the boats yeah but i mean for plastics that are not intended to be anti-fouling but if you know plastic bottles fall into the ocean and start to degrade just because of the you know, the polymer nature of plastics, are they naturally, um, let's say, do they uh, biofilms or has anyone looked at that or do they attract biofilms? Mm, yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great question. So. The microplastics is very young and not a lot known, but I just say that ask. Yeah, yeah, no, great question. So they're finding, and we did some work on this as well, that in terms of the plastics will have like a unique microbiome. So the microbiome isn't necessarily that it's not the same thing as a biofilm necessarily, but it's the first bacteria to foul on a plastic, for example. So we did some work. There's others who have done this work as well before us, but just looking to see if plastic has a microbiome that's the same as the, you know, the water surrounding it, or if you're on the beach, the same as the sand nearby and so on. And what others what others have been finding is that plastic will have a unique microbiome that's totally different from the water surrounding it. And our work was done in the lab. So we were looking at seven different plastic recycle categories and we were incubating them and running seawater because at the Duke Marine Lab, you're right by the water. You can just pump seawater into the lab and measuring their, the microbiome. So the 
I realized I didn't define that the gen like the genetic makeup of the bacteria that are found on the plastic. And we were monitored the microbiome over 70 days. And we're finding that even after 70 days, the plastics had distinct microbiomes from one another. Most supplements are taken on faith and can take weeks or months to have an effect. Even supplements backed by scientific studies may or may not deliver those same benefits to you. But what if you could feel the results of what you took within just a few days? Lost Empire Herbs offers the highest quality, wild-harvested, non-irradiated pine pollen, and that can dramatically impact your hormones fast. Right now, you can grab it for one cent plus shipping and handling at GeniusPollen.com. Oh, the different plastic types had different yeah. microbiomes? Yeah. Which were still different from the microbiome of the surrounding you know, sand or plants or whatever it may be in the body of water, right? Yeah. So others have looked at the water surrounding. We were just looking to see if the recycling types were different in this study. But in the scientific literature, it's pretty well established that plastic has a different microbiome from the water surrounding it. And often the sand. So I've I've seen the water, the seawater study more frequently than sand. Well, it makes sense. It's a different microenvironment. So a different bacteria would be able to take hold. I don't know if they're eating the plastic, but at least it's a home for certain ones that are able to adhere to different types of plastic. So I would guess that's part of the reason why you get different microbiomes with different plastics. Yeah. Yeah. We did find bacteria that were associated with hydrocarbon degradation to be on the plastics. We weren't looking into any, there was no noticeable degradation and we weren't looking into measure degradation either, but the type of bacteria have been found in, you know, to be associated with hydrocarbon degradation. So oil spills, for example, which are hydrocarbons and plastics themselves are hydrocarbons. So it makes sense, but yeah, it, it was, it was interesting to know that the bacteria themselves could were must have been like sort of selecting the different plastic types, but that those microbiomes you could tell the difference between one another. So yeah, yeah, I guess it's like a snail with a shell, you know, or some kind of mollusk. If it finds a shell that'll fit it, it'll go in there. So I mean, bacteria <laughs> fits a different mechanism, but if it finds a place it can hang out and exist and eat and not be killed, I guess it would hang out there preferentially. You know? <laughs> yeah yeah so um i didn't mean to take you astray but what so what is the mm -hmm. focus of your research surrounding microplastics like what kind of questions are you trying to answer yeah so my research is really interdisciplinary i'm at the nexus of marine biology environmental toxicology as well as public policy so i'm looking at how governments businesses and biologists mitigate plastic pollution so my work has ranged i've with a team, a larger team at Duke, we've looked at how governments are responding to plastic pollution by looking at two decades of public policy responses. Um, we've looked at how large companies are also committing to reduce plastic pollution in their sustainability reporting. And then as you've heard already, I've done some work in the lab as well. And a lot of my work has, which we haven't talked about yet, but has been looking at plastic consumption in marine animals. And I uses sea anemone as my model animal. It's, it's also a model animal for corals, um, but it's slightly easier to work with in the lab than corals directly. Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. 
The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the uh, you know the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going. And I love coffee. Thank you. Oh, so these, uh, these creatures inadvertently eat some of the microplastics, and then um, I would guess bad things happen to them biologically. Yeah, so that's what we're looking at. We're, part of our questions are just around the feeding behavior. So why are they consuming plastic to begin with? And then, like you mentioned, some of the ecotox- ecotoxicological consequences. So can they extract additives from plastic, for example? You mean, are they preferentially extracting certain compounds from the plastic? We don't know if they're preferentially extracting certain additives from the plastic, but can they even extract additives is sort of our starting question. So I'm not sure how much additives have come up on the podcast before. I know you all have discussed microplastics, but there's over 10,000 different additives or compounds that have been associated with plastic. Some of these are intentionally additives. Plasticizers, colors, all kinds of stuff, right? Yeah. Tons of stuff. And that's they part of the reason they're there is just to make plastic, you know, so useful to make it soft and bendy and colorful. But when you are a scientist on the other side, you're starting to look and say, okay, there there could be so many different, especially organic compounds in plastic. And some folks have reviewed them. We know that there's known endocrine disruptors, known compounds that can impair development, known improbable carcinogens. And also just a ton that we don't know anything about. So, yeah, so we've started to look at additives, focusing on metallic additives first. I mean, metallic additives have known toxicological impacts already in the literature. Metals have been widely studied. So that's part of the reason we started there, as well as when you get into the organics, there's so many, so many more options, I guess I would say, of different additives to look at. Yeah, I guess, so maybe you can consider plastic as like you have the polymer backbone and then the additives are, I don't know how they're, they interact with the, the backbone and stuff. And when plastic degrades, are the additives like, you know, the, the least tightly bound and the most likely to decay and come off the plastic? You know, has anyone established that? Yeah, so, so plastic additives are not molecularly bound to the polymer. So that's part of the reason that they reach out so readily. So that's you know one of the key concerns from our lab about plastics is these additives that you know can make their way out of plastic very readily depending on the environment you're in right so whether that's an animal's stomach or in seawater yeah that's part of the reason that we're looking at them so what are you seeing so far with your sea enemy uh, model animal what happens and what do, what you know what's the experiment look like what do you see yeah so we're working with the sea anemone, as I mentioned, and part of the reason that we chose this this animal, partly because I had already said it's a model animal for corals, but as well, they don't they don't have eyes to visually detect their prey. So they use a combination of physical stimuli and chemical stimuli 
in order to decide if they're going to eat something or not. So they have these great this this great crown of tentacles, and when something comes into contact with their tentacles, they'll either guide it towards their mouth or they'll throw it away and decide not to eat it. So we've been, you know, first off, just asking the basic question of will plastic stimulate feeding in sea anemones or will they ignore said plastic? Studies done in like the 1980s, not by our lab, but by others have found that they won't eat things like a gelatin pellet, for example, and they'll move it away. So we were curious, you know, will they even eat plastic to begin with? And we found that, yes, all anemones that we tested consumed multiple plastic pellets. So pellets are just the pre-production pellets or nurdles that are the raw material to make all the different plastic items you use every day. And so first, yeah, we found that all anemones consume multiple plastic pellets. And then we were curious, so partly about the additives, but I can get back to that later because I want to talk about this other project that we've been working on. We were curious if plastic additives alone would stimulate feeding in sea anemones. So we basically took plastic pre-production pellets, plastic knives that were that were made from those pre-production pellets and just very clean water. And we leached the pellets, we leached the knife into this water and kept some water with no plastic as our control. And then we took the plastic leachates and we placed them on little glass fiber filters. So they're just um, like filter paper, but made of glass, so no plastic. And we put a very small amount, just seven and a half microliters onto these small glass fiber filters of the pellet leachate, the knife leachate, and then no plastic, just water. And interestingly, we found that with the plastic pellets, anemones that consumed the leachate three and a half times longer than just the glass fiber filter alone. And the plastic knife, they consumed it for four times longer than the water alone. So when they consume something, they ingest it and it's retained in their gastrovascular cavity. And then when they decide they're done, they basically just spit it back out. So yeah, so we thought it was super interesting that basically they were thinking that glass with just plastic additives on it was food and significantly longer than just glass alone. So something in this plastic additive mixture as well as there's the physical, there's physical stimuli as well, but something in this chemical stimuli, this complex mixture of plastic leachates is, you know, stimulating the classics of taste in sea anemones. Um, so we thought that was pretty, pretty fun and pretty interesting. Yeah. But then what do you do with that? So what's the consequence to the anemone? Does it live less, less time? Does it, you know, look all messed up and grow tumors? Like, or is it totally fine? What happens to it? Yeah, great question. So this was just at first a basic question, basic science sort of asking the question of, you know, will they eat it? We weren't doing long-term health studies, but they did not look any different at the end. I'll just state from my observations. What we're curious for the next step is, and this is going back to the to another study, but we're trying to see if they actually accumulate these these different chemicals. And this, in this study, we're looking at, do they accumulate chemicals directly from plastic? And in our first study, we found that there were increased concentrations of lead in sea anemones that consumed polyethylene plastic pellets, high-density polyethylene plastic pellets daily for 12 days. And 
what that says to us to, to get to your point is that this could potentially be a new source of lead in the food chain, right? Which, which is, you know, lead is well known to have development can de- impair development. It has known toxicological consequences. So we're starting there in terms of, do they actually bioaccumulate? Well, so, so you're saying our- that uh, certain plastic, the food chain of animals will bioaccumulate stuff that never normally would be bioaccumulated possibly. Yeah. Or that they might, coming into contact with metals, for example, and all of these complex organic compounds from plastic um, in ways that they wouldn't necessarily in the environment if plastic weren't there, right? So there could be other sources of these various compounds in the environment, but plastic, it would be an additional stressor in the environment. Right. But like, you know, let's say I'm a, I don't know, I'm a fish that likes to nibble on an enemy's Mm-hmm. And I'm nibbling on ones that have eaten microplastics. So they have a certain level of lead that's bioaccumulated in them. I eat, I eat an anemone, let's say. Now I got even more of it in my tissues. Then something else eats me. Then, you know, a person eats that, that thing. So it may be a source of bioaccumulation where people may think, oh, well, these, uh, you know, tuna, uh, for some reason, seem to be eating a lot of microplastics because they have a lot of lead in them. I'm just making this up. But maybe it actually comes from several levels down the food chain and there's a uh, you know an accretion of this bioaccumulation of certain materials because maybe it starts at the lower end of life there yeah for sure that's exactly exactly what we're concerned about and there's you know billions of people who rely on seafood as their primary source of protein so yeah so that's exactly what we are concerned about richard yeah okay i understand um I've asked everyone I've interviewed microplastics about this, and I really don't have much of an answer, but do you know anyone that is modeling as best they can? And I know the real world is different from lab model, but still, they could provide directional or order of magnitude information. But is anyone taking plastic bottles or other plastics and sloshing them around in a tank of salt water with a light source and maybe some sand and you know other things to see how fast they break down and what kind of constituent you know, chemicals end up in the seawater around them. Anyone have a lab set up like that where they can start to, you know, get some data on this? Yes, not exactly, but close. My colleague, Dr. Joanna Seip, who recently graduated from Duke, this was a, what her dissertation was looking at from my point of view. She'll she'll obviously explain it in more detail. And it's not, they don't have a beach set up necessarily, but she's looking at the fragmenting of plastic in order to characterize you know, the different sizes and shapes of microplastics that come off that that are abraded. So I know they took a piece of rope found at the beach from the Duke Marine Lab, sent it up to Durham, uh, where most of Duke University is based, the Marine Labs in Beaufort, North Carolina, right on the water. So they sent it up to Durham, where Joanna was based, and they were looking at some weathering there. So yeah, I'd be happy to introduce you you two so you can chat about that more yeah that'd be great i think you know also for you guys too it may be uh, a good thing to model to see what's going on you know to look at um you know if you have an enemy in a tank and you put some plastics in there you know after a day or two what's what's in the water and what's in the anemone you know, maybe yeah. you do another one for a week or two or a month and see what what they're spitting out what they're what they're keeping and how that's changing what's left of the plastic after they feed on it for a while yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We've um 
we haven't yet teamed up like that, but it'd be it'd be something that I'd that I'd uh, be really interested in doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, what other what other questions are you working on in your research? Yeah. So as I mentioned, my work's super interdisciplinary. So we've also been looking at how governments are responding to plastic pollution and you know, looking, reading a bunch of different public policies that have been adopted by governments over the last 20 years in order to address this issue. And well, something well, do interesting- governments, yeah, Do governments yeah. perceive it as just like, a, oh, it doesn't look good type problem like aesthetics? What do they know about microplastics? Do they know about possible health impacts? Like what, what does, what do various governments know and how has that shaped their policy? Yeah, great question. So they've, we've seen that most of the public policies that have been adopted, especially at the national level and subnational, so like your cities, states, and so on, a lot of those have been focused on plastic bags. And, you know, we found, we were looking at in this study about 291 different policies. We were finding that only 10 actually targeted microplastics, I believe it was 10, and only one tire targeted tire wear particles. So the microplastics created from tires and road friction. Yeah. So as you sort of alluded to, governments are really behind. Well, governments aren't targeting microplastics as much as the scientists are talking about them and that we're seeing in terms of reported pollution levels in the environment. Hmm. Okay. But again, are various governments aware of the magnitude of the problem, or do you see that they don't even perceive the problem and all the potential effects of it? Like, what are you hearing and what are you seeing in their policy? Like, what's missing? Or is it pretty good, pretty inclusive, and they're capturing all the issues? Yeah, the the focus that we see on plastic bags, I think, really sums up that they're not, that, you know, this, although I think it's really worthwhile to target plastic bags, I do think that, you know, there's so many different plastic types surrounding us that those are just, you know, the tip of the iceberg, I guess I would say. There's all the other single-use plastics, which still got some attention, but there's so much more to be done. Plastic bags just doesn't, you know, just doesn't get to the heart of this issue. And I think like, for me, I think the place to start is looking at plastics that can be avoided. So um, the UNEP calls it the, you know, the unnecessary, the unnecessary, what is it? Oh no, I'm forgetting. Sorry. That's okay. We can just edit that out. No problem. Okay. Yeah, no, no problem. Take a breather. If you remember, we can uh, redo it. The answer, if oh, not, we could just move on. I do remember the okay. problematic and unnecessary plastics. So those that, you know, are either problematic due to their chemical additive content, uh, for example, or they're unnecessary to begin with. So plastic bags is often one of them because we have a known replacement for them of just your reusable cloth bag, for example. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more to be done than plastic bags, I would say. That's not all that we saw, but seeing that that was so much of a highlight, I think really emphasizes that point. Okay, so what what other issues are uh, are jumping out at you that you're working on with plastics? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was just trying to think about which part I want to talk about. (laughs) There's so many different things going on in the plastic world. So yeah, so something else that we've been looking at as well, and this study hasn't, 
yet come out, but it's under review. So hopefully it should be out soon. But we've been looking at how large companies are responding to plastic pollution as well. And by large, we just we were looking specifically at those that are large by their annual revenue. So the top 300 on the Fortune Global 500. And we're reading through their different sustainability reports and trying to get at, you know, one, are they even committing to reduce plastic pollution? And two, like what types of plastic are they targeting? And, you know, how does this, uh, and, and what type of actions are they taking as well? So, and how does this align with what we know about the best available science? Um, so that was a, that was a really interesting study and I hope that we can share it soon, but in brief, uh, we saw that there was a lot of focus on commitments involving increasing the recycled and recyclable content of plastics, as well as increasing recycling efforts as well. So increasing how much plastic we can recycle and then in new plastic products, the percentage that is comprised of recycled or recyclable material. So, and the reason I find that interesting is that, you know, globally, we've only been able to get at like a 9% recycling rate for mechanical recycling of plastic. So a little bit of what we're seeing companies commit to isn't exactly matching up with what what has been shown to work for the majority of plastics. Yeah, but also too, if you have uh, all these plasticizers and additives and all that, and you recycle a plastic, maybe now the structure and all the previous additives combined with new additives and, you know, new polymerization may leave islands of, you know, over-polymerized or islands of uh, concentrations of certain additives that when the plastic starts to break down, maybe now it's more friable maybe it exposes these um, these aggregated concentrated you know areas of either maybe deformed polymer or again other additives now that will preferentially leach out in great quantities so i know recycling in some ways may be very good but the quality of the product and the nature of it and how it breaks down may be unintended in a good or bad way yeah exactly that's sometimes it's called that can be downcycling because the quality of the plastic is actually downgraded. Then it limits the ability for plastic to then be used oftentimes in, in food packaging, for example. So most of the food packaging, if not all the food packaging that you see, most of it is not, is your new pristine plastic and not recycled because of the reasons that you were just saying, Richard, that the quality is downgraded because there's all these different additives in plastic and different contaminants that are introduced during the recycling process as well. So, yeah, so it was interesting that we were seeing sort of this disconnect with what we know about recycling. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that plastic isn't recycled. There's so many, I think we could have a whole podcast just on that, but, you know, it's not designed from the start. Most plastic at least is not designed from the start to be recycled at end of life partly because of the additives. And also economically, it can be really costly to undergo recycling. And it's often cheaper to produce new plastic instead of recycling the, the previous plastic. And the infrastructure is also limited as well. That, you know, especially I'm based in the United States, but recycling infrastructure needs to be improved as well. 
Right. But again, it may be the unintended consequences of, you know, the more recycling that's done, maybe the lower quality or maybe the quality is acceptable for the active use. But as it decays, maybe it's far worse for the environment. I'm just speculating than uh, virgin plastics. You know, who knows? I don't know if that's being explored, but it probably should because, you know, recycling may have unintended negative consequences in ways we can never imagine. Yeah, absolutely. There needs to be more work done on that. I agree as well. That reminded me, like, and recycling really is just delaying plastic disposal too. You're not, it's, you can't be recycling infinitely. So for most plastics, at least. So I think it was about since 1950, about 10% of plastics have been recycled. And then only 9% of that 10% has been recycled more than once. If I'm getting the the exact percentages right. Uh, so it's yeah. about like 1%. Yeah, or 9% of that 10%. So yeah, 1% of the 10%. Yeah, like 10, so, you know, 0.1 times 0.1, 0.01, like 1%. Yeah, sounds like. <laughs> I'll leave the mental math to you, but. <laughs> oh, no yeah. problem, no problem. <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very small amount that is actually recycled more than once. So in the end, we're just, you know, pushing off the, delaying the issue of needing to dispose of this plastic in a way that is safe and doesn't make its way into the marine environment, for example, or other environments as well, like freshwater lakes, rivers, and so on, that then often drain into into the ocean. Oh, or what if you're able to embed a compound that if the outer layer of plastic wears away to a certain degree, this inner layer contains compounds that when combined with seawater or even fresh or brackish water, accelerates its, you know, its uh, degradation. Maybe it turns it into, again, maybe it degrades a lot faster. It degrades along a different profile. Maybe that would be something that may work because so much of this plastic is going through the environment. If it had a, uh, like a dead man's switch, essentially where it, you know, it kills itself faster somehow or disassociates faster. Maybe that's a solution. It's a cool idea. I would ask, what does it degrade into? You know? Yeah, I don't know, but you know, I'm not sure what could be done. I mean, there's a lot of heavy chemistry there, but it's an idea. Maybe uh, one of the additives, again, deliberately would be something like that, that when it's exposed to certain environments, it it radically accelerates the degradation. Yeah. Yeah. I think think that would be really interesting. It's all about the environment it ends up in, right? So you'd have to control for factors, plastic, to go full circle to what we were talking about earlier, be, you know, First getting some microbiome layer, then the biofilm, probably sinking into a different environment. So just at what point could you trigger some degradation? And then what does that environment look like? And how do you match that up is, is sort of what I where my brain is going. <laughs> and then how do you account yeah. for things, rainfall and, and sunlight? And yeah, it's a really cool idea. And also in terms of cleaning up certain environments, like you know, I'm in Austin, Texas, and you know, I've gone for walks with my wife, you know, around various bodies of water, and there's all kinds of macroplastic floating in it. But what's the potential of a single macroplastic item to turn into millions or billions of microplastics? I don't know. So maybe like the the eighty twenty way of doing cleanup would be make sure you get rid of the macroplastics because the longer they sit, the more they can, you know, fracture into again thousands, millions, billions of microplastics. So numbers wise. Maybe that's the best way you can kind of take a whack at the problem and reduce its severity. Yeah, I we've done some research on plastic cleanups as well and looking at like, what are the different, in this study, we were looking at what are the different 
clean up technologies that are out there in order to clean up plastic pollution. And I completely agree with you. Like we need to turn off the tap, right? We need to stop producing so much plastic that makes its way into the environment. But we know that by count, there's more microplastics out there than any other type of plastic. So we have way more microplastics out there for the reasons that you just said, that plastic's abrading, it's weathering, and even just during use, like opening plastic packaging produces a bunch of microplastics as well. So yeah, I do think we need to remediate some plastic pollution. We do need to be and clean it up, but we do need to be careful about how we go about that in terms of, you know, some of the methods out there can if you're not cleaning up by hand and you're using these various technologies, there can be some unintended consequences. So collecting bycatch, for example. So sometimes you can interact with the animals that are out there if you're using big nets, for example, to capture plastic. Yeah. Hmm. So what a complicated problem. Right? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's you do want to get it out there. It's just get the plastic out of the environment. It's just making sure you do that in a way that doesn't inadvertently harm the environment. And there's a lot of really interesting projects out there working on this and that have also, I would I would add just some added benefit of like education and outreach as well. And in terms of letting folks know about the issue, thinking of like the Baltimore trash wheel, for example, I don't know if you've ever been there. What is that? Have you ever visited the Baltimore trash wheel? Oh no, it's a trash wheel or rail or what is it? It's a wheel. And they have now a series of different trash wheels. So I don't know, like, I don't know the exact mechanics, but basically in, in the Baltimore Harbor, which is a really, you know, beautiful area. And there's a lot of people walking around by the city in this area and they have a, a trash wheel. So it's like a wheel that will spin around and collect trash that would be draining into the harbor otherwise. But they, I think, go above and beyond in a great way in terms of, and <laughs> I'm not working with them or anything, but they, you know, do fun things like they add googly eyes to the trash wheel and conduct a mm. lot of education and outreach programs. So people get to know more about like what trash they're collecting and how you can prevent this pollution to begin with and so on. So I think there's some added benefits to the plastic cleanup technologies as well. Oh, it'd be like a trash monster or something and kids could see it eating trash or adults yeah <laughs> but you know you don't want them to think like it's going to solve it for them but it's just a interesting example of what could be done what comes out of the the water i'm sure maybe they display i guess maybe they have exhibits when they display the stuff they pull out and the conditions in and they, they show you like oh every day we pull out 10 pounds of plastic and i'm sure they, they can make like a whole museum out of the thing you know yeah yeah I don't know if they have exhibits, but I know they did do a lot of data collection around what are we finding in our trash wheel. So I think it's um, yeah. some fun efforts. Yeah. And some worth efforts. Yeah. I think also too, like if you have, um, you know, a body of water near you and there's, you know, visible plastic pollution in there, I mean, you could probably do a simple experiment where you go and sample the water, you know, uh, I don't know, every day for a week, get a baseline and then every day for a month, you go and pull trash and plastic out and see if it materially changes the concentration of various plastics and things in the water. That might be a, like a somewhat simple, like directional order of magnitude experiment to see what the possibilities are. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool idea. We're doing something. I know, I know you need, you know, you need funding to do all this. You can't do everything. <laughs> just 
Yeah, no, no. I want to do everything. That's the problem. <laughs> but yeah. one one thing we are doing, it's not exactly what you said, but it's it's sort of similar. Um, we have some so the Duke Marine Lab is located right near the Rachel Carson Reserve. So it's like a little nature reserve in Beaufort, North Carolina. And we have sediment samples. Someone who was in the same lab that I'm in, who's now a professor at Wittenberg University, that she collected in, I want to say it was the 1980s, 1990s. And she stored them for years. Um, she had extra samples from her experiment. So she's just kept them for years. So now we're going out into the Rachel Carson Reserve and, you know, seeing if we can do an update basically of how have our microplastic levels and sediments changed over how many decades has that been now? Four <laughs> times flying. But yeah, so over decades basically, in order to see um, you know, how are the numbers of microplastics that we're finding changing? We expect that they'll increase over time, given that the amount of pollution that we're generating is increasing over time. And then, you know, what other patterns might we see? Um, an increase in a certain type of plastic, increase of certain shape, for example, like maybe microfibers from our textiles. So this, we're still working on this study, no results that I can share at this point, but it's been fun and to get this that project started and hopefully we can share results results in coming years. Yeah, excellent. Well, Zoe, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, so I am on Twitter. It's my first and last name, Zoe, Z-O-I-E, last name D-I-A-N-A. And I have a website that shares uh, some of the research that I've talked about today and more of my background. It's my first name, www.myfirstnamemylastname.com. Yeah, and I'm also around various Duke Marine Lab sites as well. So you can find me there. Excellent. Well, Zoe, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Remember, before you go, to grab your one penny bag of pine pollen for all the amazing, all-natural hormonal support that men and women the world over are raving about. Try it out and see how it works for you. All you have to do is head to GeniusPollen.com to grab your bag today. Within days, you may be able to notice greater energy, more focus, added recovery, and more. Again, please visit GeniusPollen.com to learn more now. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.